Is this 2021? Or is it 2021? You know, like the year one. And this is the sequel. Heaven help us. On the negative side, we now know the cost of a petty U.S. president who sends his followers to seize the U.S. Capitol by force. Six needless deaths. On the positive side, the first two weeks of January have been the best civics lesson ever. If you want to know how the U.S. government can work, how it's supposed to work, pay attention. How do states record their votes? Who casts a deciding vote? If a U.S. Senate vote ends in a 50-50 tie, what does it mean to certify electoral college votes within the U.S. Congress? If you want to know, the process has been laid bare for you to thoroughly examine it. We are living through history. After four years of whatever you want to call it, like a failing restaurant or familiar bodega, on January 20th, America will be under new management. Joseph R. Biden, manager. Kamala Harris, assistant manager. I'll have the COVID-19 some civil rights and subtaquis. So much for the peaceful transition of power. Bringing America under new management wasn't as easy to get to this year due to a bizarre rally. Yeah, that's what we'll call it. On January 6th in Washington, D.C., in which supporters of President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol to ransack the temple of democracy. It was so surreal that on Twitter, members asked the fine Captain American actor Chris Davis to suit up. Evans, more woke than most of his fans, replied, beginning quote, I'm speechless. Just think of the carnage had they not been white. So many people enabled this, end quote. As Evans is dipping his toes into politics with the project, a starting point, he helped give voice to politicians like Texas Senator Ted Cruz, one of the several senators widely blamed, along with Trump, for this year's insurrection. But it's still January, a lot of year left to go. Heaven help us. And we've only just begun. This will be This Monday, we celebrate the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on his national holiday. While it might seem as this holiday as always has been, early this year, the current pastor of King's former church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, became one of two new Democratic senators making history. At interludes, when it comes to history, we turn to our favorite historian, the chairman of the Social Sciences Department at Kennedy King College, Ted Williams III, to break down this historic month in which we honor King's memory and inaugurate a new U.S. president. On this episode, we'll look back at January 6, 2021, arguably one of the worst days in American history. And we will look forward to the start of life under the Biden administration with Ted Williams III. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes.
Interludes, a pure Lighthouse production. Brought to you by A1 Pestmasters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pestmasters. And now, all the way live from the south side of Chicago, give it up for your host, Valerie Johnson. Now, as the first couple takes their first dance as president and first lady of the United States, please welcome Beyonce. in 2009 when a tuxedo Barack danced with Michelle in that beautiful white dress while a classic R&B song was slayed. <laughs> Remember wanting to hear the real version of the song? At ah, that's better. If only we could do that in real life. But you can't rewrite history, except if you're soon to be former president Donald Trump, history is one of the first things you try to rewrite. Remember when Trump compared his, you know, to Obama's and felt he didn't measure up, so he sent his hype man, Sean, dancing with the stars, Spicer, to make it less facet? This was the largest audience to ever witness an inauguration, period period. That was the start of... Sean Spicer, our press secretary, gave alternative facts to that. But the point remains... Alternative facts? Alternative facts, four of the five facts he uttered. The one thing he got right was Zeke Miller. Four of the five facts he uttered were just not true. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. It was the beginning of gaslighting. It was a false spark that would burn for the next four years. Way back in November, a whole two months ago, we were sure that the amount of methane coming out of the Trump administration's mouthpieces might end this year. Then came January 6th. One last hoorah. One last speech of falsehoods to rev up the red mega caps to physically damage the U.S. Capitol, breaking windows and planting pipe bombs. At Trump's inauguration, he described an American carnage. Four years later, he made it a reality. Here's my real-time reaction along with our writer-producer, Michael Womble, of a riot at our U.S. Capitol. Anybody that's on Capitol Hill right now, I'm just praying that they are able to... um, To return to their reg- to their offices and 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 places safely, I've i found out that uh, Kamala Harris is you know on Capitol Hill as well. And yeah, the, I, yes, 
as a member of the Senate, she would be there. She would be there. Yeah, vice president elect. Um, so she is there. She is one of the many people whose safety was compromised by mm-hmm. this this activity. Mm-hmm. I Maybe mean, these people are from other places. They go back to other states, and then they blend in with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And and it's scary because you don't know. Mm-hmm. Like the person next to you or the person that's your co-worker is Looney Tunes <laughs> and, and has a, such a cult of personality that they uh, believe that an orange man from TV <laughs> should be president as long as he wants to. Oh my gosh. And they're breaking I'm, into, yeah. yeah breaking again, into the Capitol. Breaking like, into I've the Capitol. I've never seen this. Which never is uh, this. a federal offense. And they should be arrested. They should be arrested. I mean, this is this is looting. This is all the these are all the things that supposedly uh uh MAGA was against. Violence and rooting, uh, uh, looting the, and rioting. And, we are the we're the party of law and order, the Republican yeah, this party. Is not, that is not the party yeah, of law and order. Us. To see that to see that guy chase that African American uh federal officer up the stairs up several flights of stairs that's not that's not law and order that's That's lunacy that's lunacy (laughs) i mean i mean there's a two there's a two word phrase for what it is i mean (laughs) i mean but but we just never saw this side of it like this Mm -hmm. this is yeah, it, it's it's terrible. I, mean, I that's what I'm asking. So that was my question. You was like, how do you deal with? I mean, you don't talk to them about politics, okay? But I mean, you don't talk to them about science either, well, or 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 the economy or the pandemic. Well, I mean, how many subjects can you avoid talking to folks who are feel like it's their right to be there? And their right to break the law in this mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. They feel that they're defending their president. They feel that this is, you know, the uh, the, the, the election was stolen by the, the corrupt Democrats. Um, they're part of the Q situation. Some of the Democrats are. They're you know they're all doing the cannabis thing, and also the the Biden and, and Harris. Oh my gosh. We didn't want a we didn't want a, a a woman to be, but my gosh, we don't want them to be a vice president either. We don't want a woman to be in that position either. So it's like, no, it's we're we're fighting against that. It's it it the we I know you guys called it, but the president of the United States is still Donald J. Trump, and we believe it. We elected him. The popular vote says that we're correct. Um, the uh, Arizona and Wisconsin and uh, Georgia, you guys lied. I don't care how many times you re- you recount it. There's probably lost votes from the elect the, from the servicemen who are still out of the country. Although that's lie. Uh, Trump has spoken against the servicemen, but we'll get it. That's a whole nother topic. But yes, yeah, so just all of these conspiracy theories. And they said uh, I heard um, George Stephanopoulos from ABC report. Over 60 um, filings from Trump's people, and he raised over $200 million to help find the conspiracy or the lost votes of this stolen election. 
I, maybe they can. I'm still the president of the United maybe, States. Maybe they can use that money to uh, repair the windows to the Capitol. Maybe they can use that money to uh, take care of the health care bills of the woman who was shot, who was confirmed shot outside on the Capitol grounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they can use that money for the mm-hmm. therapy that I would guess at least some of the members of Congress might need after, after having this. someone storm mm-hmm. their building right. in in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were people, while they were locked in the chamber, in one of the chambers, there are people walking through the offices of other congressional members, mm-hmm. you, sitting at their desks, using their phone. This was some kind of, I guess, tour? Like they were on some kind of tour of some sort? Oh, you're watching video of it? Yeah, I'm watching still photos. And, and, and I'm watching some guy dressed in black with some kind of headband and uh, I guess a, a, a bulletproof vest and uh, as, as one of the protesters standing at the dais where Mike Pence and uh, Nancy Pelosi were standing only like two hours before. Mm. This is... Um, oh, wait. Uh, and Ivanka, Ivanka Trump um, called the rioters patriots and then she deleted the tweet. Really? Yeah. This this is not this is not okay. Yeah. This is not okay. And this then, is not all and right. Vice uh, Pres- and Vice President Pence uh, called uh, for the rioters to leave the Capitol building. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not. This is none of this is okay. Mm-hmm. None of this is okay. Let's see if there's anything else coming through just for a second. Um, Did Biden address the Washington riots at all? Has he spoken yet or no? No, I haven't seen anything from Biden. Uh, uh, This is uh, Representative Cory Bush from uh, Missouri, newly elected uh, congresswoman. Um, My team and I are safe. I am in disbelief. I can't believe domestic terrorists are roaming around inside the Capitol. I'm remembering being brutalized and treated like a domestic terrorist just for protesting to keep my people alive. Um, St. Louis, she says, you're in my heart. Uh, Corey Bush was one of the protesters from Ferguson. Right. Uh, after mm-hmm. Michael Brown. Michael Brown, right. And so she has protested. But now uh, she is watching how these protesters are being treated in a completely different way than the protesters out in Ferguson. I mean, if you think Ferguson, you could almost see the uh, near fireworks shots and photos in the dark the uh, the automatic weapons going off there, the tanks rolling down the street. We don't see any of this here. We just see people who, through sheer force of numbers, uh, managed to put our government in, in, in jeopardy. And this is something you said uh, earlier. This is uh, Stephanie Rule, also from MSNBC. Uh, earlier today, Um, at real Donald Trump welcome the protesters currently storming the Capitol. She uses protesters, but we'll we'll forgive her for that one. 
At no point today did he address the pandemic ravaging our nation or acknowledge the 3,300 Americans who died of COVID yesterday. You got to remember that Joe Biden, just like Mike Pence, has been in that role before to do this. He has done this job before. He did it in 2012 and 2016 uh, when he got to uh, go to the Congress and certify the re-election of Obama Biden. He also got to do it in 2016, 17, when he came in and got to certify the election of Trump Pence. President-elect has called the work of the people outside. He's described them as a mob. NBC News. NBC News projects John Ossoff wins Georgia Senate runoff. (laughs) So that man speaking, President-elect Joseph Biden has now control, his party does, of the White House, the House of Representatives, and the U.S. Senate. So, Democrats, Stand down and stand by. It's going to be a great four years coming up. And I'm going to wrap for right now. Good. (laughs) Welcome. This is Interludes. And I'm Valerie Johnson. And I'm very um, apropos, very happy to have uh, back on the podcast uh, uh, political professor Ted Williams III. How are you today? I'm, uh, well, I've had better weeks, <laughs> as we all have, but hanging in there. Yeah, we're we're in a we're in a brand new year, and as I was saying just before the uh, podcast, I was in the business meeting trying to you know align some things for 2021, um, and you said you were in the middle of an audition uh, yeah. on on Wednesday, yeah. Yeah. January 6th. Yes. <laughs> yeah, my work is uh, twofold, so I. Uh, my work is partially as a performing artist uh, and playwright and partially as a political science professor and commentator. And oftentimes the worlds merge and I do political art or I end up doing, uh, you know, media-based political work. But uh, I really couldn't do much of anything that day uh, other than sort of commiserate with folks who were wrestling with the same issues and thoughts that we all were having that day. And uh, yeah, so it was a, a very uh, challenging to say the least, time for all of us. Right. In the wake of the events that happened on January 6, 2021, in which President Trump, President Trump incited a riot, where would you now rank Donald Trump among the U.S. presidents? I think we did that before on a yeah. previous Yeah, so I, I, obviously, you know, with all due respect to him and the office that he holds, I've never been a fan of his. Uh, And so, um, you know, we've had some pretty uh, bad presidents in history. Um, Andrew Jackson was notorious for the Trail of Tears. Uh, Rutherford B. Hayes uh, essentially single-handedly ended the Reconstruction era uh, and ushered in almost 100 years of Jim Crow segregation and legally sanctioned terror for African-Americans. 
Thomas Jefferson was uh, a notorious racist and wrote a book called Note, Notes on the State of Virginia in which he talked about the inferiority of people of African descent while he was uh, having children with someone of African descent. Um, oh oh, wow. and, and so uh, you can look throughout U.S. history and find some bad presidents uh, who mm -hmm. have done some really, really uh, sort of sort of had egregious violations of the notion of equality and freedom for, for many people. However, uh, given all of that, uh, I would suggest that uh, Donald Trump probably, um, it's hard to rank him in that, well, I would say that he does rank within the, I personally believe, the worst presence we've had. And, and here's why, not just because of, say, you know, policy, public policy, right? Uh, you could make the case that, you know, policies like the Japanese internment camps, uh, policies like, um, you know, uh, unnecessary wars, the war in Iraq that we found out was under false pre uh, pretenses. You made the case that all those things were problematic and damaging and very clear um, examples of how the power of the pen in the presidency can be used to really end people's lives and make life horrible for many people. Most Trump supporters will make the argument that in terms of policy, President Trump has not uh, created any kinds of policies like that, the ones I just mentioned. Uh, however, I would suggest that we have to open up our eyes and look at the bigger picture and look at context. And I would say that, you know, as a person of faith, there is the uh, the idea of the sin of uh, commission and the sin of omission, right? So the things that you commit uh, and the things that you don't do, right? The things that you don't do are can be sin sinful as well. You know, you see uh, someone in great need or pain, uh, you have a moral obligation to help them. I would say that the sins of uh, omission are probably as egregious for him as the sins of, of commission, right? So when you look at the way that he's responded to this pandemic, where over 300,000 Americans have died, and there has been uh, a paltry, uh, if or non-existent response to this completely, uh, he has essentially left the pandemic to the states, uh, saying that very clearly, uh, and also has publicly stated that they were essentially just waiting for the vaccine, which even now that it's being rolled out will still be months before we actually feel the full benefits of it. It takes a couple of weeks in between shots. Um, we have to get uh, to um, this level of vaccination across the entire population, uh, herd immunity, uh, so that we have enough people who are uh, vaccinated to make it worthwhile. So President Trump, I believe, has blood on his hands when it comes to the pandemic and the response. Of course, he did not create it. Uh, nor could uh, anyone stop the pandemic completely. But when you have the most powerful position in the country and you abdicate your responsibility for things like uh, mandatory universal testing, uh, mandatory or universal mask requirements, um, support for uh, states, localities, local businesses, uh, the fact that the American citizens only received two $600 checks in the period of 10 months of a pandemic, that essentially destroyed the economy. Uh, this is immoral and unconscionable to me. And so when I look at those things, I see President Trump has to rank among the worst presidents in history uh, along those lines, right? That alone. And then you put on top of that, the violent rhetoric that has been his real calling card since day one, the anti-immigrant rhetoric, the um, denial of the issues of racial justice, uh, racial injustice in this country, 
uh, the demonizing of the poor and communities that are marginalized. Uh, these things have now, as you can see, manifested themselves very directly into violent actions. And I would say they manifest themselves into um, violence and death in other ways, because when you, for instance, blame a city like Chicago's problems on the local uh, government and do nothing to fix it, uh, unfortunately, then the blood of the people who are dying in the streets uh, at some level has to be on your hands in that way as well. So, Yeah, and I, that kind of goes, you kind of answered my second question about mm -hmm. some of the lessons that should have been, what do you think some of the lessons that should have been learned from the invasion on the U.S. Capitol? Because I, I kind of feel like there was so there was so much building up to what happened on January 6th and just kind of talk walk me through like what was that rhetoric like there's a there's a section of people that believe wholeheartedly that the election was stolen yeah, there's yeah. That, like that that's that's inbreded in their brain and uh, president trump used Twitter, he used Facebook, he used social media to kind of galvanize his 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 base, his supporters, and raise I think over two hundred million dollars to you know fight against the election results. So yeah. walk me through that on yes. what like what happened with the invasion. I'll call it the invasion on January. Well, I think we have to go back and start really in twenty sixteen. And um, the reason why is because President Trump was asked very pointedly, if he did not win the race against Hillary Clinton, would he accept the results of the election? And he said very clearly, publicly, that he would not accept the results of the election unless he won. And he said it in jest, and people dismiss it as just um, comedy. Uh, but it was a very clear indication of who he is. We know who he is. The fact that close to 75 million people could see that and then watch four years of what has been a complete and total disaster of a presidency and then support that or not come out strongly against it is a tragedy that is larger than him. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time in a lot of different circles talking about these issues and working with people on them. And I can tell you, uh, Valerie, that I uh, try my best to be uh, somewhat nonpartisan or at least bipartisan. I try to uh, be engaged in the political process in many different spaces, but I refuse to um, sit quietly as these kinds of uh, actions happen in this country. And, and I will speak out against them. And I, I think that, you know, there's a, um, uh, a, a quote that says that, uh, you know, neutrality in the, um, the face of injustice is no virtue. And so um, really, so I have tried to stand against this from, from the beginning in this way and will continue to do so because Trumpism is not leaving. Trump may be gone, but Trumpism is not leaving. So if you look at 2016, you, you see the, the, the real sort of misinformation campaign. And then what you also see, and I would actually even suggest that maybe you can go back to the 80s on this as well and say, okay, uh, when the FCC sort of deregulated uh, under the American Reagan administration, what they did was they allowed for media companies to not have sort of unbiased media, right? So that they would not have to present, there was this uh, sort of equal presentation clause, if you will, that if you presented one sort of side of the issue or one voice, you'd have to have uh, equal time across the board. Well, that was wiped away during the Reagan administration. So what you saw was the creation of the hyper-partisan media outlets that we see today, the Fox News is, 
uh, and that sort of thing. I mean, you could say MSNBC and CNN, although I, I would tend to have a little bit of challenge with that, but I, I get it, right? So maybe you can make the argument that both are equally partisan, right? So, but the point is, is that, so that, that sort of, need the 24 hour news cycle, cable news and the need for constant content, right? So you, you began to see that disinformation campaign, President Trump hopped on that, has enjoyed that, has uh, uh, sort of uh, reveled in that kind of conspiracy theory, uh, alternate set of facts universe. And so it really led him to the uh, led him to the presidency and he continued to peddle in, in those lies and falsehoods all throughout his presidency. I've actually been a little disappointed today that you know uh, Twitter uh, slapped him on the hand uh, and gave him a 12 hour ban. I wish they had just banned him completely. Uh, Instagram did, and so did Facebook. Facebook but Twitter, yeah, I, I just yeah, saw that. Twitter, Facebook. Twitter mm -hmm. is his main uh, source of communication, mm -hmm. and um, it would say a lot if they rejected the falsehoods that he has been pushing. But of course, Twitter is a for-profit company, and uh, maybe they're trying to be fair. But maybe they're trying to make money too and so you know you could look at that in that way so anyway having said all that you create this environment where you have two sets of facts two alternate universes if you will and you kind of build this world of folks who feel like they have been uh, shut out they're disgruntled they feel like the world is against them and they found a champion in this president and unfortunately these grievances and this ideology uh, and this dangerous, dangerous um, uh, movement will continue. And I will say to you very clearly, Valerie, that you know both of us are, are people of faith. Um, I am have been heartbroken, uh, not just by what has happened in this community, but by uh, the um, mainstream sort of uh, multicultural church movements, uh, their lack of ability to stand against these things. Uh, very clearly uh, with scripture, with the direction that they have the power to uh, really assert uh, in people's sort of, you know, uh, psyche and that sort of thing. And so I really hope that this will be a turning point this week in which people will begin to stand very clearly on one side or the other. Yes, you have to pick sides today. Um, there really is no space for neutrality when it comes to domestic terrorism. Yes, domestic terrorism. And I definitely, uh, that's how I view what happened on January 6th, January 6th as, as domestic terrorism. And I remember, I'm remembering the protests, not to compare, but the kind of the protests that happened after George Floyd was, was, was uh, murdered and the Black Lives Matter. I noticed that there were tear gas. There was a lot of like angry, um, like the police, just it was it was a weird situation when there was the yeah. Black Lives Matter uh, protesting. Now, what do you think would have happened if Black Lives Matter had broken into the U.S. Capitol? So um, I, I was uh, I did a TV show the other day, and the host asked me, and I laughed out loud um, <laughs> when she asked the question. I held myself a little bit more when you asked the question today, Valerie. We all know what would have happened, right? Um, uh, there, it doesn't need to be said again. Um, we recognize that in America, you know, America really is a dichotomy, right? So on the one hand, it is a place of freedom and opportunity. There's, there's enough of uh, that sort of uh, reality uh, to lull a lot of us to sleep. There's a, there are enough people who are of color who have made some money. There are enough people who have degrees or enough people who have freedoms that they, we look at the society and we really refuse to believe 
um, what has been said to us now really for 400 years. You know, Maya Angelou said that when someone shows you who, who they are, you should believe them. Believe them, them. yeah. Right? And so, uh, you know, America has shown us that uh, in many ways, um, they are um, they are a place that accepts second-class citizenship. And that's really what it is. It's not that African-Americans are not uh, better off in some ways in this country than they are in other places. That's That's actually very true. And yet what it says, however, is that, as Dr. King said, that you cannot have a first-class nation with second-class citizens. So to compare American poverty to, say, poverty in South America or poverty in Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, in one hand makes us feel okay. Right. But on the other hand, you recognize that America has a permanent uh, injury in the racism and inequality that persists in this country. It is a permanent disorder, a permanent disease. It is a permanent limp, and the country can never be what it could be as long as you have millions of people who are denied access to the American dream or the equality that exists in the American dream. And so we know very clearly, I think honestly, uh, Valerie, that yes, that this week's uh, protest and the lack of police response is a more um, uh, a more obvious example of racism than what happened with George Floyd. Right. Um, it really is, uh, because it showed that people are from a particular ethnic group are not considered threatening at all. So they can walk through the Capitol, do whatever they want, and people look at them and go, oh, well, they're just white. They're OK. They're not going to really blow anything up. Um, I'll take it outside of the African-American context and say if they had been Arab and they had been Mexican. Um, if they've been Asian, can you imagine the response that would have happened, let alone African-American, Native American? I mean, anybody else. Anyone, any other race of people and, would and not so, have been able to do that. Yeah. yeah. And so it to me, it is more infuri infuriating than what happened with George Floyd. Because on full display for all of us mm -hmm. was a an acknowledgement that there are two sets of rules in this country. And Valerie, that is heartbreaking. And it's infuriating as well. I know, I know. Um, I'm gonna go ahead and, and turn the tables here. Uh, no, not quite. Missouri, uh, Missouri Senator Harley and Texas Senator Ted Cruz, are they comparable figures in history to these two legal scholars who suddenly objected to the democratic rule of law this week? Hmm. Well, I would suggest that um, if you're looking at, at these figures, uh, particularly Ted Cruz, uh, as anything but uh, co-conspirators in what has happened, then we are missing the boat, right? Um, that's exactly what they are. Um, any Republican that has empowered what has been happening for the last four years, and I really say the last 12 years, mm -hmm. since Obama's rise to the presidency, the creation of the Tea Party, and the movement um, really of what I would call white grievance politics or white victimhood politics, mm -hmm. where people who are, you know, it's funny because people compare this movement to the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, talking about riots or the language of the unheard, which what Dr. King said, but it's so funny to consider yourself marginalized when the person that's leading you is sitting in the White House. 
How are you marginalized when your biggest ally and your biggest champion has the most powerful position in the entire country? That's not marginalization, it's false victimhood. And so what I would say is when it comes to any Republican leadership, um, they are complicit. They are all complicit. Um, even those who are more moderate, like uh, uh, Nebraska Senator Ben Sass, who is very articulate, yeah. very moderate, right. and yet voted against impeachment. Uh, this guy is complicit also. I would venture to say, although I never liked Mitt Romney before, uh, you know, the Trump administration, uh, Mitt Romney was uh, notoriously a symbol of uh, American inequality and um, uh, uh, demonization of poverty and that sort of thing. But I would say that he has found a, a way to be a bit of a champion here in these last couple of years, being the only Republican senator to vote for impeachment. And I would say in really in many ways, he probably is the only Republican in the Senate who does not have blood on his hands. And um, kudos to him for standing up. But they, yeah. but he really is alone in that way. <laughs> um, let's talk about two other senators, because unfortunately, the, the events of January 6th was eclipsed by the history-making things that were happening a day before. Uh, Senators-elect Raphael Warnock mm -hmm. and John Oshoff. Tell yes. me about the historical significance of the Georgia runoff elections and how these Democratic victories change events to come to this year, the President Biden's outlook over his first two years in office. What's the, what's the big thing? Yeah, so really, that's really the shame uh, of this week is that this historic election yes. um, really is not being talked about because of what happened in the Capitol, right? And the election is not historic for the obvious reasons. In fact, I actually reject politics of tokenism. Okay. So I, I refuse to have any conversations about how Raphael Warnock is the first black this and John Ossoff is the first Jewish this. And I think that is such a, um, uh, a ridiculous um, use of our uh, energies when it comes to politics. Um, we recognize and understand if that, what Dr. King said was true, that we ought to be judged by the content of our character and the color, rather than the color of our skin, that their race and ethnicities don't mean a thing. Reverend Warnock's ethnicity means absolutely nothing. The fact that he's the first black senator from Georgia, the fact that Kamala Harris is half, uh, you know, a Jamaican, uh, what is her, it's, it's, she's Jamaican Indian and Indian too. and Indian, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, means absolutely positively nothing. Mm. What matters is what they want to do and what their policies are. Clarence Thomas is African American. Okay. I mean, wow, you, know, you went there. You went I mean, there. He is, and I'm not, and I'm not in any way, shape, or form comparing Reverend Warnock or anyone to those folks. But what I'm saying is, is that you can have um, the right skin tone and not have the right policies. And so I really reject tokenism. Um, I hated it when they did it with Barack Obama. I hate it when they do it with Raphael Warnock. Uh, do you realize we only had 11 African-American senators in, in the U.S. Senate in, in the entire history of this country? 11. Yeah. 11. And do you realize that at one point for a period of about 20 years, just a quick fun fact about Chicago, that they all were from the same neighborhood in Chicago, which is kind of cool, actually. <laughs> so we had that. a period for, of about 20 years in the U.S. Senate, actually I think a little longer than that, 
where there were no African-American senators except for three that came from the South Side of Chicago, which was That's Barack right. Obama, Roland Burris, and Carol Mosley Braun. Mm. And so, I, I, you, know, I, you know, I know you were a New Yorker, um, and I got a lot of East Coast in my blood. I spent a number of years out in New Jersey and New York, and I love New York. Uh, and, and I really do. I try to get to Harlem whenever I can and that sort of thing. But even my New York brothers and sisters, they have to give Chicago props for that because they were not able to do that. Right. No, uh, and so, uh, you know, so in that way, we, you know, we did something great. So having said all that, the Senate, the, the fact that the Democrats have this 50-50 split in the Senate and Kamala Harris be the tiebreaker, this it will solidify Joe Biden's agenda. Now, don't forget the uh, Republicans still have the filibuster power. And right, so exactly. they will not have sort of uh, Joe Biden will not have carte blanche fully, but he will have enough uh, of a uh, majority and enough uh, traction. Uh, they would need to get, you know, a, 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 a filibuster proof majority, which would be 60 senators. If they, and they're a long way from that in order to stop the filibuster. Uh, so but Joe Biden will be able to move forward. And here's what he'll be able to move forward on. He'll be able to move forward immediately on COVID relief. Hmm. He'll be able to move forward immediately on uh, re-engagement with the climate agreements that we pulled out of across the world. I know. Um, oh, right? Yeah. <laughs> he'll, right? He'll be able to move forward immediately on his promises around student loans uh, and debt relief. He'll be able to move forward immediately on his national uh, promises around criminal justice reform. Uh, and so I'm telling you, and, I, and I'm, I'm, I listen to this. I got, I got one eye looking at Joe Biden right now. Like, I, I, I like him. But I'm kind of looking at him. You know, you look at him with that one eye open, one eye closed kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I'm like, Joe, we are with you. You got the Senate. You got the House. You got, a, you got two years, bro. If you don't get some of that stuff done, Joe, like uh, a woman who told me, a, a community activist, when I ran for office in the Ninth Ward in the city of Chicago, I ran for the uh, city council. Mm-hmm. She told me, she said, listen, say, we like you, but if we put you in, don't forget who you work for, we can take you out. And I think, I think Joe Biden has to be reminded of the same thing, even though I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt Very and support so. until he proves that he does not deserve it. And hopefully he will not do so. Exactly. I hope I hope Kamala, Kamala's in his ear like, uh, yeah. oh, hey, what we, what we <laughs> promise we got to do that uh, to, to wrap up. Now that Georgia's on my mind, we mm-hmm. put it on everybody's mind. Uh, every January, we remember Dr. King. You mentioned him earlier. It's a, Now it's around its birthday. But we often dwell on the same aspects of King's life. What should we especially remember this year about King and how that can help us as we move forward in 2021? Um, Dr. King, the night before he died, uh, gave potentially his most powerful uh, speech, even beyond the I Have a Dream speech, yeah. uh, Vince the Mountaintop. That's, I love that and uh, he mm-hmm. was in Memphis because he was there to uh, support the Memphis sanitation workers in their strike. Right. Um, I think it's easy to think about the principles of Dr. King without applying the policies of Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Dr. King was a clear progressive. Dr. King was a clear social justice warrior from the faith tradition. Dr. King did not mince words, nor did he believe in political neutrality in the political space or in the religious space. Anyone that says that they believe in Dr. King and want to put forward his legacy must take on the issues and the fights that he was fighting. And so any faith community, for instance, that, you know, that would, um, 
look at these issues and want to desire some level of neutrality, some level of, you know, both sides do it. That was antithetical to who he was. In fact, Dr. King's letter to a Birmingham jail was a scathing rebuke of moderate pastors who were more committed to order than they were to justice. So what we have to recognize about Dr. King this time and this moment and this year, what a great year to be thinking about his legacy, is that Dr. King was squarely 1,000% heart and soul with the least of these in our society. The marginalized unions, workers, uh, we talk about, you know, uh, right now, you know, uh, CPS is talking about whether teaching going to go back. Dr. King was a union organizer. He supported unions. And so I would suggest it be clear what side he'd be on on that issue, right? right. Um, I would suggest that it be clear what side he'd be on uh, on the issues of, you know, whether it be uh, tax policy, uh, how we engage with the poor. Uh, Dr. King was very clear on that side. And so I reject, and I hope that this year, that we can reject very firmly the, I have a dream, Dr. King that gets watered down in the same way that, I don't know, we water down, you know, whatever we do in American society, you know, it becomes a <laughs> sort of highly marketed McDonald's, you know, uh, and not, no, no offense to McDonald's, but it becomes a highly marketed, you know, uh, dilution of real, real nutrition, right? Uh, and real nourishment. Uh, that is what we do with Dr. King's legacy. And I, I would hope that this year uh, that we would do different. I'm gonna show you something real quickly before I go. Oh, cool. Um, it's a show and a, tell. Uh, here's a book. Um, and this, I got the old, uh, one of the, uh, not original copies, but I got this. This is this book is probably uh, an original oh. printing, if you will. Um, this book was, uh, uh, I found this some years ago or whatever. Uh, and so this is Dr. King's book, Why We Can't Wait, right? And I've probably read it a couple of times. And uh, essentially what Dr. King was arguing uh, was that moderation in the fight for justice uh, means that justice will not actually ever occur. And so Dr. King uh, recognized, he, uh, contrary to the, the belief that, you know, he was, you know, the, the, the Black Panthers and the, uh, uh, the Nation of Islam at the time uh, considered him to not be as radical as they were. Uh, but Dr. King recognized very clearly that war uh, between black people and white people in America would only end with black people getting killed. I mean, that, it was just very right. clear for him in that way. There was no numbers, no uh, resources, that sort of thing. And so he realized that integration was the only way, right? Um, separation in the American context, there was one point where uh, after the uh, Civil War, they had conversations about giving the state of Nebraska to African-Americans. And uh, can you imagine, right, with the racism that has existed in the American government, what Nebraska would look like now if it were, uh, if, if it was the home of all African-Americans in this country? Um, it would have not received the resources. It would have been discriminated against. This is the 100-year anniversary of Black Wall Street, by the way, uh -huh. which I'm going to be doing a series of videos on um, actually coming up this week. Um, but as you can see, Black Wall Street what happened when people of color and people of African descent tried to put themselves up by their bootstraps, so to so to speak, in this uh, in this country, and the way the federal government terrorized them? And so, uh, Dr. King um, was not passive. Dr. King was unapologetic. Dr. King um, understood 
what needed to happen in this country. And uh, let this be, this is actually my favorite holiday, by the way, Val. Um, It really, really is uh, because it is the one holiday that I stop and reflect and think about who I am and what my role in society is. I'm a huge fan of Dr. King and his work. I've tried to emulate uh, emulate what I could in my life uh, and continue to do so. But I hope that this year we will uh, we will go forward and we'll truly live out his legacy, not in um, theory, right, and not in principle, but truly in practice. Wow, brilliant! Thank you, Ted Williams III, for joining me on this episode of Interludes. That's a perfect way to wrap up. And and if anyone wanted to reach out to you, how could they reach you? Sure. Uh, thanks, Val. So, uh, let's see. I got a lot of stuff on my desk. I got, hey, I got my own book right here, too. Look, let's see. I let's like let's hear King's. about it. <laughs> I like Dr. King's book better than mine. But, <laughs> but I wrote a book. I actually read the two books now, but I got one sitting here. This is called The Way Out, mm-hmm. uh, Christianity, Politics, and the Future of the African-American Community. And so, really, in that legacy tradition of Dr. King, how do we integrate faith and politics to create uh, a space for fixing some of the challenges and problems that we've been facing um, in the in the African American community, particularly. And I, um, so you can get that on Amazon, whatever. Ted Williams III is how you find me. Um, I am on all the social media platforms: uh, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram. Uh, Ted Williams III, pretty much it. If you Google Ted Williams III, you'll find me. I'm actually now working with Illinois Humanities Council this year to uh, do a series of public presentations artistically and uh, lecture style uh, around uh, the issues that I come up with in in our play 1619. And we're doing an educational series around that and, um, yeah, doing all the kind of stuff, but just really trying to stay engaged in this space and really trying to not only uh, teach uh, and preach, right, because I have a ministry background, but also to inspire and educate through the arts, which I think is such a, such a critical part of our story because, uh, you know, if you can see it, you can be it, you know? And, um, you know, Christ was a storyteller. And so I, I, I love telling stories to help educate and inspire people. So that's what I'm up to. And uh, that's what I'm doing. And uh, excited. Oh, join me. We know 1619 class coming up. And mm-hmm. uh, we got 1619 virtual show in February for Black History Month. Uh, and some other things, so. Yeah, so you know, I could I could pick pick up the pick up the phone and bring you back at any time. That, oh, that could course. definitely happen. Of course, <laughs> I, I I enjoy these, and I'm honored. Um, I'm just honored to be able to do this because it's so important, and it's so important to have historic context. It's so important to understand the political structures, and a lot of people have a lot of energy and anger. And uh, right now at this time, um, I really believe they, that that we need not only historic context but we need a structure for how we go forward. And I just hope to be a voice to help to contribute to that. Thank you so much, Ted. I'm Valerie Johnson, and this is Interludes. This is the activation of the emergency broadcast system. system, system. On January 7th, President Trump tweeted. Ha, no, he didn't. Trump didn't tweet anything. In fact, he has been banned from Twitter, and Facebook, and Instagram, and every single other social media known to human beings. Just the thought of Trump going on to Parler, the trailer park version of Twitter, caused that app to be kicked off of Apple, Google, and Amazon. If you want to know what Trump thinks, 
you'll have to wait for a press release like any other elected leader. On Tuesday, January 12th, New Jersey Congresswoman Bonnie Watson Coleman wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post about what happened to her in the aftermath of the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Not a riot, insurrection. What made Representative Coleman's fire uniquely lit was its target, her Republican colleagues. Representative Coleman, a 75-year-old black woman, avoided injury from the white supremacists attacking the Capitol only to be affected with COVID-19 from the white privileged Republicans whom she huddled with for safety and who refused to wear their face masks to guard against a deadly virus. Images of Republicans waving off facial coverings in a secure location has gone viral. Did I mention that Coleman is also a cancer survivor? Did I mention that Coleman has already received the first two doses of the COVID-19 vaccine? So far, Coleman is one of three members of Congress diagnosed with COVID-19 in the aftermath of the insurrection. In a press release, Representative Coleman said, beginning quote, while I am experiencing mild cold-like symptoms, I remain in good spirits and will continue to work on behalf of my constituents, end quote. In the post, Coleman's words were much stronger. The congressman wrote, beginning quote, I am angry that after I spent months carefully isolating myself, a single chaotic day likely got me sick. I am angry that several of our nation's leaders were unwilling to deal with the small annoyance of a mass for a few hours. I am angry that the attack on the Capitol and my subsequent illness have the same cause. My Republican colleagues' inability to accept facts, end quote. Fact, Joseph Biden was elected as the 46th president of the United States. Fact, Donald J. Trump will be the only president impeached twice. Fact, Joseph Biden might be inaugurated as the 47th president of the United States. That's if Mike Pence must step up if Trump is kicked out of office. Trump could assure himself a presidential pardon if he transfers power peacefully. Maybe. Stay tuned. Once a year, we celebrate Washington and Lincoln on their birthday. To know a third name is added to the list of men of peace, John Major, Justice. Now, 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 every January on the third Monday, we pay homage to the man who paved the way for freedom, justice, and equality to make the world a better place for you and me. It's a holiday. It's a gathering. time on interludes as promised an environmental update on the fight for clean air in cities with black and brown people on the next interludes
Interludes. Original concept by Valerie Johnson. Written by Michael Womble. Produced by Valerie Johnson and Michael Womble. Original intro and outro music produced by Kendall Nesbitt. Interludes, a pure lighthouse production. Brought to you by A1 Pest Masters. For all your exterminating and pest control needs, call A1 Pest Masters at area code 773-365-9962 or visit their website at a1pestmasters.com. When you book your appointment with A1 Pest Masters, tell them that you heard it first on the podcast called Interludes. <laughs>